G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia. In this episode, we go to a place many have visited, but of which few dare speak, failure. How does it feel to fail, and how do you know when to give up the good fight? We'll start off by speaking with Nikki Durkin. At 19, she founded 99 Dresses and spent the next four years of her life trying to make it work before finances forced her into a realistic appraisal of the costs of failure. Then we'll speak to Jesse Black, hot on the heels of a startup weekend win with Teacher Time, his platform for educator-to-educator sharing. Jesse threw himself into his startup for 18 incredible months. His grand vision fell back to earth when he realized even he didn't want to use the product he designed. Finally, Matt Allen interviews a notorious figure in Australia's startup community who has just unwound his own Internet of Things startup. Yes, That's right. The tables are turned and I'll be in the interview chair sharing my own feelings about what it's like when your startup goes under. Failure and what comes after in this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Optus Innovate, strengthening the Australian startup community and Oxygen Ventures, investing in passionate tech entrepreneurs. In 2010, a just-graduated Nikki Durkin decided to try her hand at a startup, so she founded 99 Dresses, creating an exchange for fast fashion among young women. Four years later, well, I'll quote from the amazing essay she's written. I've survived being stabbed in the back by co-founders, investment rounds falling through, massive technology screw-ups that brought sales to a halt, visa problems, lack of money, lack of traction, lack of a team, hiring the wrong people, firing people I didn't want to fire, lack of product market fit, and everything else in between. And yet I failed. I won many battles, but I lost the war. Nikki wrote this essay, which is linked to on our Tumblr, to share her own feelings about failing. And at the same time, she asked for other founders to step forward with their own stories about how failure feels. And that's really the whole theme of this episode. So since that's the case, it's my pleasure to welcome Nikki Durkin to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me. So... Nikki, you wrote this essay just about a year ago. It was just about at the end of the journey. A year later, how do you feel about what you wrote? Um, it's funny, actually, to look back on it because it's literally been, I think, in a few days, a, a year, probably a year now since I wrote it. Mm. And um, I don't know, I feel very different now than I did back then. I think it helps time gives you a bit of perspective on the whole thing and I'm actually incredibly grateful that I went through that whole experience <laughs> so um yeah uh it's, this is it's, I, I mean I think this is a common theme is that everyone is grateful when enough time has elapsed so that the pain is not so close yeah I think that um i when it all happened it was all kind of when I wrote that piece it was literally the day we decided to shut it down because I couldn't think of anything else to do so I just wrote and um and yeah like it was incredibly raw and, and painful but you still know that it was a great experience and it you know you should be grateful for it but it was very raw which makes it hard hard to be grateful but after after um you know, a year, I would even go so far as to say, like, failing was probably one of the best things that could have happened to me. I think it gave me a lot more perspective on, um, I mean, a lot of things in my life. So it was, it was good. And I, and I think it's also maybe something we don't appreciate enough is that particularly when you're young, that is exactly the right time to actually try something that maybe you won't succeed at. Yeah, I think... I mean, I've always had so much respect for people who who have responsibilities and will still go out and, mm-hmm. you know, give a startup a try or, uh, you know, start working on a project where there is a lot of risk involved. For me, a lot of people would kind of say, oh, you're so brave doing this and, and it's so risky and all this kind of stuff. And for me, I, I kind of, I never viewed it that way. It was always, um, you know, what's the worst that could happen? 
is that it wouldn't work out, but it's not like I'm going to be homeless or I have a family to support or anything like that. I had no commitments. I still don't. So it's it's easy to kind of, relatively speaking, to, to start something up, whereas my co-founder who came on board at the end, he moved to America with a three-month-old daughter and his wife, and they were all relying on him and this startup. And like for me, I had so much respect for him doing that because that was risk I think so so because you had other people involved because you had investors involved the negotiation of knowing when you can't give any more which is I think really the point it's not you know is this done it's actually is there any more to give here how did you how did you come to that was there any single moment or was it a gradual process where you realized this is just not going to happen to be honest I think that towards the end I was just so tired (laughs) I didn't know if I could go another round but I'm also incredibly stubborn so I wouldn't give up as well so I'd still try and I think that's a dangerous combination but it's the combination that makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur too right yeah I mean yes and and I also think it's incredibly hard to be objective about something when you have so much on the line. And for me, it was, you know, my reputation, four years of my life, my dream, like I had employees and their families relying on Nine Nine Dresses being successful. And I remember the day before I decided to shut it down, I spoke to one of my investors and he said, Nikki, put aside the fact that I'm an investor and just think about like, is this what you want to do for like another five years of your life? And, um, and is this, you know, like, is this going to be a huge thing? And I could see problems with the business model before then. And not necessarily the business model. It was more with the market. Like, secondhand fast fashion market mm-hmm. was a problem. And I'd kind of think, oh, but I'd fix it. Like, we'd, we'd come up with something different. But I think that one lesson I learned was, like, you can two, – two entrepreneurs can start out in different markets and work just as hard. And if you start out in a market where there isn't a lot of money and that's what I was doing, um, like, you're never going to be successful. And so it was, for me, a process of coming to terms with, with that and not thinking, oh, we just need to pivot one more time or do this or do that. And um, I think it was the right time to – to shut it down and it was good that I was forced to do it <laughs> um, because I don't think I would have done it by myself. So, so what do you um, mean that I, you were forced to do it? Well, I mean, we ran out of money and right. and that's a, it was a good thing. Like, I think it was time for it to, to stop because we had a great product. Our users loved the product. We had a great community, but like the unit economics of the secondhand fast fashion market just aren't great at scale even so um and i could talk about that for ages i learned a lot about it but <laughs> and, um, and you you will probably put that work uh, that knowledge to work again soon i would imagine yeah i mean i'm sure it will come in handy yeah. uh i've had quite a few people approach me about oh like you worked in secondhand fashion like come and do something with um with my startup we're doing something similar and I'm just like nope I'm not touching that market again Um, (laughs) once burned like no like good luck to if you want to do it and you can make it work that's great but I just learned too much about um, user behavior and uh, how how all that works and how the unit economics of secondhand fast fashion work and it's just um, you can have the best product and we had a, a great product we had traction we had all of that but when you look at the unit economics of making that work as a business i i just you could kind of see that there are probably better ways to make money and investors at the end of the way at the end of the day want to make money and so we couldn't get that extra round of funding and i think it was actually a a good thing um because not getting the funding was a symptom of the fact that there was problems i think um so yeah so one of the things you mentioned was the the fact that the founders often, and this is just naturally, they lack objectivity. And I know Jesse Black in his interview, which is coming up after yours, talks about the fact that his wife, who was not in the business, was able to sit down with him and be, in a sense, the sounding board. Did you, did you find, was there a person who you were close to who you could have those very grounded, very realistic, sort of no BS conversations with? Um... 
yes and no. Like, I, I still f- feel like um, I did at points and then at other times it was kind of, I guess I probably didn't want to necessarily have the no BS <laughs> conversations. I was so right. determined to make it work because that's what I do, I guess. And, um, and I just kind of, I was, yeah, I became quite good at figuring out myself, like getting myself out of, out of problems. And I guess I like, I like that. And um, I think the other thing to realize that I realized was that um, so many of us as entrepreneurs, we identify ourselves as entrepreneurs. It's part of our self-concept. Mm. And the media paints this picture of an entrepreneur as someone who never gives up. Mm. And so that was such a big part of my self-concept that to even entertain the, the idea of like voluntary failure would just like I wouldn't even... It wasn't something that ever crossed my mind. Well, it's like surrendering part of yourself to do that. Yeah. And, well, I think it just, it, it went against my whole concept of myself. And mm. so it was very, um, it was not even something that I really entertained. So that's why I think that it was good that it didn't work out in the end. And I kind of had to shut it down, I guess. So you invited people to share their own stories. This was a year ago. Did they do that? Yeah, I got, I think, over a thousand emails oh, <laughs> wow. months to get through them all. Of, um, I mean, a lot of them were just people saying thanks for the post and um, other people sharing bits of their story. I was thinking about at the time I kind of mentioned compiling a bunch of stories, but um, by the time I'd worked through all the emails, and I'd, I'd heard a lot of them. And I thought, yes, that would be useful for the entrepreneurial community, but I guess I was a bit over um, <laughs> kind of being the failure girl I didn't want to be nervous like oh you know I failed and let's talk about more failure and it's not that failure is a bad thing it's just that um I don't know I felt like I'd done my bit <laughs> I guess, it's, yeah, it's thing. one thing it's not everything right yeah it's just that you know once everyone starts talking to you and like oh can we interview you on failure and this and that and like I like I do it because if it's helpful to people then then uh, you know I, I'd like to contribute in that sense but um, I kind of, I don't really like writing, so it was, um, it just wasn't something that I decided I wanted to spend time on. But it was nice, again, to hear all the stories, and um, and there were a lot of them. And, you know, some of them involved, like, stints in, like, mental hospitals and big co-founder fights, like, so much drama you could make movies out of them. Um, and then other ones were just you know things that they maybe worked on for a year and they put so much into it and then it just kind of petered out or um you also had a lot of stories of people who they weren't forced to make that decision of like just completely stopping something and so it turned into like a zombie startup where you know like they weren't they weren't putting all their resources in and but it was still kind of there which i think again i'm lucky that i was forced to just Put a pull the plug on the whole thing because at the end our community were doing everything they could to save us like they offered to put together a crowdfunding campaign for us they were like oh you have our credit cards on file just charge us like a monthly fee or um you know all these different things but at that point you know it was kind of like it would go into a zombie state mm-hmm. if we did do that and keep it going so we decided to just pull the plug nikki durkin Thank you very much for sharing your wisdom on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me. This is Mark Pesci with a big shout out to our sponsors, Optus Innovate, who provide funding to Aussie startups and support to the entire Australian startup community. Led by Alfred Lowe, the whole Optus Innovate team are awesome to work with and big supporters of the startup scene, including Fishburners and Innovation Bay. Optus Innovate are active local corporate VCs and are looking for Series A investment opportunities. Outside of investment, Optus Innovate can also help connect your startup with Optus for partnership or business development opportunities. Find out more at optusinnovate.com.au. On Sunday, the 31st of July, 2011, 
I was a judge at my very first startup weekend. Now, I'd already done a lot of judging for the new inventors. And so I was really looking forward to listening to, I think it was probably 12 or 13 13 different groups of people that had met on the Friday night, had worked really hard for all of the weekend. And on Sunday night, after probably practically no sleep at all, all these different companies or companies to be were pitching the incredible projects they were working on. And the winning group had a big team. It was something like 11 people. I remember thinking, wow, that's, just a, that's a huge number of, of people. And of course, people can select which team they're going to work with in a startup weekend. So you could tell that there was something special about that team. And when the team pitched, they had a video and a lot to back it up around a great idea for a platform to allow teachers to share materials in the classroom, between classrooms, between schools, between states. Uh, they ca- At that point, they called it Classmate. The, the name changed later on to Teacher Time. Now, after the event, I uh, actually reached out to the team, and that's how I got to know Jesse Black, Teacher Time's CEO. Jesse is with us here on This Week in Startups Australia. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's uh, fantastic to be here. I had to go digging in my archives <laughs> to actually take a look at that, but I remember how excited and how earnest you were. And I remember, you know, doing Skype calls with you periodically over the next several months as you were working through your ideas and looking at your wireframes and and giving you the best advice that I could on how to move forward as a company. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I just have, I'm going down memory lane right now, actually just thinking about uh, all the time that in, that we spent in those early days. And I was, I really felt like I was living the dream in, in, in that, in that, that zone I was in. Yeah. And so you, you did it for, I don't know, probably the first yeah. six, seven months. And then you decided that you needed to do it full time because you're a school teacher. That's right. I'm a school teacher. I teach uh, year three. So I'm eight, nine year olds. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which is a, but that's a, which is a great age to work with, right? They're very bright. They're very inventive. They're Indeed. Very, very active at that age. They, they are. And they, they think teacher is God, but yet they are ready to ask questions and have opinions. So it's a great, it's a great age to kind of be there to mold. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it's what's when, I mean, because you can see it with parents, it's when the lights go on. It's yeah. when parents can no longer get by with the old fashioned excuses. They actually have to <laughs> start explaining stuff that's it (laughs) and um okay so you made the decision Mm. to to actually go and do this full time i did take time off i did i felt like i was jumping off the uh the cliff so to speak but i I reached a stage with uh teacher time at that point where i had been working full time and then going home and i'd work you know until 12 o'clock one one in the morning and it was just not sustainable i had this this deep feeling that if I keep burning the candle at both ends, yeah. um, the candle is going to be crap. So I need, I need, to, I need, you know, I need, I need to pick one or the other. And um, I'm so happy that I chose teacher time. So we, we, uh, I, I quit my job and started working full time to uh, to try to roll out something effective for for the teaching community. All right. So you do this and yeah. you, you take the leap and every entrepreneur knows exactly what it's like to take that leap. I certainly know exactly what that's like. And you know, you're in flight. You're, you're yeah. really high on the fact that you're doing this. But at the same time, there's a whole real world around mm. here, which is giving you feedback, is maybe telling you you're getting traction or you're not getting traction. And how tuned are you into all of that when that's going on? That is a really good question. Um, now, I'm speaking from retrospect here, so I'm looking back and trying to remember. So I want to try to give an accurate portrayal. I, I At the time, I felt like I was re- I was tuned in mm. to the, the signals, and I felt like the signals were saying, you've got a good product here. You've got you've got traction or potential traction. Um, you know, I could go into a little bit of the metrics, but at the time, I felt like, uh, this was really going to be something. Mm. People I talked to loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know the the camaraderie I built around the team. Everyone was very inspired. Mm. So there were all these these things that I think on the surface level said uh, this is absolutely uh, a go. You just need to put in the blood, sweat, and tears, and 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 you know you'll make something of it. So yes, at the time I felt like I had all these signals and metrics that um, you know that we were doing doing good. Mm. When did you start to maybe think that that was not as true as you wanted it to be? <laughs> when, uh, yeah, well, I think probably when I heard my first my first no, after, um, you know, 
after giving what was to me like the best pitch possible right. to the to the absolute smallest segment of the market i mean these were the people that 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 i thought if if they don't go for this product no one's going to go for this product and they didn't go and for the they product. said they said well you know they did the classic you know what not right now but come back to us you know you do a b c d and then come back to us right and so i think at the time uh, that was a, a red flag for us. Mm -hmm. And what I sh probably should have done is said, well, how come we didn't build ABC in the first place? Right. That's what they're asking. Obviously, obviously, there is some kind of um, dissonance going on between what we thought people wanted and right. what we've actually built. But uh, but we just kind of saw that as, oh, we've got more feedback now. Okay, now we know what to do. Okay, that's good. We got good feedback. But I think if I had been a little bit more uh, objective at that stage, I would have said, aha, here, here's a red flag. So, I mean, but it's interesting because taking that no often means that you're also working harder for product market fit. So how sure. do you, sure. so, so there's, <laughs> there's a whole sort of paradox there. It's like one level you want to take the no and run with it because no is, I mean, I've heard it said yeah. and it's, it's both true and annoying. No is where a sale begins. Yes. Right? A sale begins yes. with no. But how do you also balance the wait? We've done. We've created mm. the wrong product versus mm. okay. Wait, we need to incorporate that feedback into a product. You know that yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think um, probably the other. You know, we did a lot of classroom testing. We we interviewed a lot of teachers. Right. We watched how they taught. We then did follow up interviews. So the feedback we got from there, I felt like even if those teachers were giving me giving us the nose, that feedback was you know highly qualitative, and we could we could really try to work that into a, a saleable product. And mm -hmm. and I do I do really appreciate that. I think the nose from those people helped us build something better. Um, I think I think that the the first no that I got in terms of we're not going to put money on the table to give you this thing. Right. That was probably, that should have alerted me, I think to like, okay, can you make the kind of money you need out of this to take ah, it to the next step? And right. I think I didn't have a healthy appreciation for just the cost that would be involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bec because, well, you have to pay everyone involved exactly. to make the product. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was another another moment later in the track as well where I um, briefly stepped back in the classroom to try to augment, you know, to try to get a little bit more income for myself while I was still doing teacher time, right? Just for a brief period, and you know, there's that old saying in um, in programming like you have to eat your own dog food sort yes. of thing. And here I was, okay, I was I was a tech savvy teacher in a technologically advanced school, yes. right in the market cross-section I wanted, yes. and I'm not using my own technology that I built for teachers. And and that that was the biggest red flag where I thought, I really had to take a step back and think, what what am I doing? Um, okay, so now you're at this point, you've, you're in the classroom because you need to make money because you're not making money from the product that right. you've created to make money. Yes. At what point do you start to get the sense that this is maybe not a proposition that is sustainable? Uh, you know, I think it was when I realized that um, two two things. One, I realized, well, okay, if I'm not using my own product, uh, how can I ask anyone else to? Mm. And second, I started to look. I mean, we'd been at this for almost over a year now, and you know, stuff moves so quickly that even even a year of in that space, there were things coming out yes. that could do that could do things that our product could not do. And I thought, oh, that's what I want to use. I want to use what those people are, are building. So those two things combined um, were, were really kind of, I, I was suddenly all at, at the coalface. So you felt like you were under-resourced and falling behind. Under-resourced, falling behind. And I don't know if you had this feeling before, but it was almost like this shaky feeling of, is my is this whole um proposition that i'm i'm built this thing on top of is the whole thing shaky because mm -hmm. i you know the the idea of not using your own product that you've built to solve a problem that you thought would have existed for all teachers mm -hmm. you know that was mm -hmm. that was scary that was scary okay so you you reach this point but now you're you're in the middle of it what mm -hmm. does it take to get to the point where you're ready to first admit to yourself yes. that you need to pull the plug mm -hmm. and then yeah. you need to admit to the rest of the team yeah that's a really good that's really good i think uh you know the um yeah yeah that's i got to think about that for a second because there's a few things involved i think for us we had 
at the very end, we'd given ourselves a goal to get into the Imagine K-12 incubator. Mm -hmm. And uh, we made the short list. Mm -hmm. We got a Skype interview with the people over there. Um, They took... I think 11 teams out of 30 and they chose not to select us. And, and at that, that was so late in this progression of teacher time that I think when that final no came, all the wind kind of went out of the sails at that stage. So, uh, Looking back on it. So it was a killing blow in a way. It was a killing blow. And um and it was nice having that killing blow in a way though, because it it really it's it's external. It was external. It was this external validation from people we really trusted. I mean, I love the Imagine Care Twelve products. So for them to come and we also had the benefit they came back and gave us feedback. They said, you know, we I asked them what what do we need? And they Mm -hmm. said, Well, you came to us and said you had a thousand users. You need to come and say you have ten thousand. I said, Okay. You know, I I, I got a metric I can hold on to. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so at that point now, the, the team sort of has its yeah. wind t- taken out of its sails. Yeah. I mean, how does it, did you need to formalize that? Did you have a group meeting and go, or did everyone just sort of drift away? How does you that? You know, that's a really good, we, people had, people were drifting away the whole time. Mm. And I think that's probably another red flag I should have looked at. But we started, like you said at the beginning, at, with 11 people. Yes. And I think we ended up with, including myself, four of the pe- uh five people total right. who were really core and, and dedicating their time to it. And and at once we had that no, we sat down and we said, what do we do from here? Right. And it was quite clear. We uh, we refund everyone who's paid this year for the platform yeah. and we unlock it, make it free and it's just going to gonna live, but we're not going to spend any more time developing it. And, and it was unanimous really mm-hmm. um, because I think everyone felt like we had given it the best go and the opportunity cost was too high to continue right. at that stage. Right. And did you have, had you had investors on the hook at that point? We had spoken to investors in the past. But you hadn't actually gotten any we, money. That's correct. We hadn't actually gotten any money. Because so. that's, yeah, I mean, yeah. trust me, when you cross that bridge, <laughs> yeah. it then makes the decision to shut things down a lot more complicated. It was so funny. I think, I, looking back, I think we were too late. For, we, well, we were. We were far too late for investors. The time to get them in would have been in those first four or five months, mm-hmm. I think, when we actually hadn't even hammered out from the marble, the shape of the final product. I think that would have been a good time to pump money in because once we had that, all that that product chiseled out to come to the conclusion that it's not effective anymore, yeah. well, you've missed your window. Yeah. Right. Okay, so now it's been how long? Yes, uh, goodness gracious. Uh, it was summer 2011 and now it's, uh, excuse me, it was winter 2011. I'm <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Northern Hemisphere. started, thinking. right. Yeah, and now it's uh, winter 2015, so it's been four years. Yeah. And how long has it been since you shut down teacher time? Uh, we stopped full-time development uh, a year and a half ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So now now that you have some distance from mm-hmm. it, um, what, what would you say to other entrepreneurs sure. who are at that coal face? How, yeah. how can they think clearly yeah. at that coal face? You know, I, I, the only advice that I could hope to give is, um, is uh, honesty. Um, Looking back on it, there were re- there were red flags that I think I should have listened to mm-hmm. that I ignored either through pride or through um, uh, just a you know there's all these messages out there just you know keep going never give up keep going but mm-hmm. in some ways I think those can almost be quite damning I think I think even an earlier give up could have saved a lot of strife in the well, end but I don't this know. is the paradox of it an is. entrepreneur an yeah. entrepreneur doesn't mm-hmm. give up that's it and. Then for that reason, they go well past well, their use by date. And and I hear that, and I do agree. I, you know, I think for uh, the other thing I'd say is you need a killer salesperson. You need someone who is ruthless mm-hmm. just for selling your product. And if you don't have it, that's fine. Just make sure someone in your team does. But if you look around your team and you go, well, you're not the salesperson, you're not the salesperson, and I'm not. Oh crap! You know, I and I think that that was one of the things we lacked. So, if there's any concrete advice I can be, it's like you have to know exactly who's going to sell that, who's not going to, like you said, who's going to start at no and right. take that to the yes. Um, passion will only get you so far. Yeah. Jesse Black, thank you for coming on this week in Startups Australia. Mark, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'd like to take a moment to talk about a project that's really close to my heart. For the past few years, I've been helping folks out with their crowdfunding campaigns. I've learned a lot from my own campaigns, and now I'd like to pass along the secrets of successful crowdfunding to you. So this August, I'm leading full-day seminars in both Sydney and Melbourne that will help you find your backers, show you how to set your goals, and teach you everything you need to know to execute a successful crowdfunding campaign. 
Crowdfunding is the new way to bring your startup or your album or your film or your book to life. Find out more at markpesci.com slash crowdfunding. Good day, this is Mark Pesci. I'm here today with Matt Allen. We're doing something a little bit different in this segment because actually I've asked Matt to interview me. So Matt, take it over. Hey everybody, I'm Matt, uh, Matt Allen from Melbourne. I'm a Director of Founder Institute and I'm here to talk to Mark about Moore's Cloud. Um, specifically, about the end of Moore's Cloud. Mm. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know, let's just go back to the beginning and tell us um, what Moore's Cloud is and, um, and the point in time where you thought it was going to be huge. Well, I guess it was the middle of 2012 and I started to understand that it was possible to get connected devices that were going to be very inexpensive. The Raspberry Pi was sort of the first device that I saw and went, okay, this could actually be used to drive all sorts of things. And I'd been, I had been fascinated by full spectrum LED lighting for a very long time. And all of those ideas sort of jumbled up in my head in August of 2012 and really was very quickly able to prototype something, show it to people, get them excited, build a team, and move to a Kickstarter, which we launched in October 2012, where we tried to raise $700,000. We ended up raising a quarter million, which is still very good for a Kickstarter, well within the top percent, but was below the goal, so we didn't make it. So we had to make a decision about whether we wanted to move forward. And at the same time, we were trying to understand what product we were selling, what market we were selling to find all of that fit. And we changed the form factor of what we were selling, which was a cube that was loaded with lights that we called the light into a string, which we called the holiday. So essentially Christmas lights, essentially the same software, essentially the same hardware, but a different form factor. Made it much easier for people to understand, made it much easier for investors to understand. And we started to move forward with that in March of 2013. We shipped the product in December, exactly a year ago today, the customers got the first product. We're recording this in December 2014 and uh, took it to market. Right, cool. So that was 12 months ago. So over the next, over the last 12 months, when did your spidey sense kick in? When did you think that things may not have been on track? We went to America, I would normally go as part of the launch festival, we went, we showed the product off there, got some interest from some of the sort of more um, corporate-oriented VC funds, uh, took it out to try to also get some sales channels built, and we became very clear that the price point, this is 199 was actually high for what the market expectation for what Christmas lighting should be. Now, we hadn't really sold it as this thing that you would use all year round and not just two weeks a year on the tree, but it would actually go and live in the kids' room or go and live in the playroom or that it actually was lighting for your entire life, not this one thing. And so getting over that threshold was first you had to do it with investors and then you'd have to do it with the market. And we were raising capital, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, because we'd really done all of this. We managed to go from a design on a piece of paper to shipping a product to market on less than $150,000 for a hardware product. It's amazing. I don't think anyone's ever done that. The price for having done that was that everyone had basically worked for free. Not everyone, but the core team members had worked for free, sweat equity, and By the time the funding deal didn't materialize, which is in March, it was March 15th, the Ides of March uh, of this year, as soon as I found out the funding deal didn't fall through, there was a voice in my head that said, that's killed the company. And I didn't want to listen to that voice, but there was a voice in my head, and I remember the voice, and the voice said, that's killed the company. But the way that really manifested, though, in a very practical sense was that because there wasn't money to pay people who had been working a very long time, myself included, without getting paid and had depleted their own savings and had depleted their own capacity to just sort of give more for free, what happened was people basically said, I have to go and make money now, right? So director of marketing goes off and does that, hardware person goes off and does that, and I realized at the beginning of April that if I don't do that, I'm going to be bankrupt. I I, I literally poured my life savings and two years of my life into this company. And I've gone, okay, we can't move forward like this. I can't even, I'm in a position now where I can't even spend the time to go find other investors because that's time I need to spend paying rent. Mm -hmm. 
and it gets into this very tight position where, you know, a few months ago, everything was flowers and it was going to be brilliant and we we're going to sell all these units. And we got our investors to invest even more money. And all of a sudden now, three months later, they're hearing a very different story. And that made them mildly upset. Right. So let's talk about um, talking about the rest of the people. So uh, your spidey sense kicked in earlier this year. Yeah. When did you have that conversation with your co-founders? Well, it, it started fairly immediately. The conversations happened around... Because different co-founders you have different conversations with according to what their involvement is and what your expectations are from them. And so my technical co-founder, Keen, it was for him, it was just a matter of, I can do this work, but I need to be able to do other work so I can earn money. With one of the other co-founders, it's like, look, I poured too much time and I need to just go work on my other things. Good luck. And so it was almost more that they were having this conversation with me right. than that I was having this conversation with them. You know, I, one of the one of my blessings and also one of my curses is that I'm an eternal optimist. I will always want to see the best side of something. Um, that gives me uh, an enormous resilience and persistence, but it also means that sometimes I can be chasing things longer than is rational. Probably something you want in an entrepreneur, but not necessarily something you want in a business, yeah. right? It's it's that it's that interesting conundrum. And so, what we tried to do in April, as I realized I wasn't going to be able to really work on this anything like full time, was to be able to hand the company over to one of the investors to be able to um, run the ship and find investment and. When when he backed away from that, you know, and I, I thought everything was essentially signed, sealed, and delivered. I had informed all of the investors this transition would be taking place, why this transition had to happen. Part of that, my job was to communicate very clearly what was going on and what I was doing to remediate the problems we were having. But once that fell through, I was left in the position where I was essentially the sole man on deck sole director, sole, there wasn't even an employee because employees get paid, but just the sole person keeping the lights on with a very limited amount of money in the bank and realizing, okay, this is clearly it, it's done. The only thing that I can do now is try to do the honorable thing, make sure all of the debts get paid and wind up the company. Yeah, right. So did you consider any other options? Like what, obviously, you know, in, in startup land, we're always thinking about different paths we could possibly take to get to, you know, a success, whatever success may be. Right. So obviously winding up the company is a fairly uh, large full stop. Yes. Um, any other things you thought about? Well, the thing is, is that, yes, you could entertain the idea of licensing the technology or selling the technology off. But the thing is, all of those require months of time and investment. And who's going to give that time and investment if everyone has to be off making money? And this is the problem with having that trough there is that if that trough is deep enough, you don't even have enough resources to crawl it out in order to realize investment or realize the the investment back from the people who had put the money in. Yep. So speaking of investment, how do you um, how do you how do you reconcile this with your investors? You know, they they take a risk, right? You don't you can't. There is no way. The only thing you can do is be honest with them. Yep. And say, look, this is what's happened. You know, we had all of these bright prospects. These are the reasons these prospects didn't pan out. And this is what I've tried to do. And, and we were transparent through that process. Okay, that didn't work. The only thing I know that we can do right now is to basically close up shop. And you're all probably gonna, you're all going to lose your investments as a result. And people have different reactions to that you know we i have had six months of fending off very expensive legal complaints from one of my investors because they they took it i don't know if you can call it personally but they they really took it as a failure on my own part and did what they could legally to goad me into doing something differently. But there really isn't anything different to be done. So all I could do is sort of defend myself against those complaints and continue moving forward. Other investors are sad but more copacetic. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's that kind of thing. And, you know... If there was a failure on my part here, did I did I not explain that startups are in, in inherently risky investments? You know that you're essentially 
waiting for a unicorn. You know, the amounts of money lost were, from an individual perspective, substantial, but from uh, a funding perspective, were relatively were, were tiny. You know, there was about one hundred and thirty, hundred forty thousand dollars invested. So, in that sense, it's not a lot of money. But if someone's actually in for fifty thousand dollars, and it looks to them as if I've set fire to that pile of money, then they're going to be upset. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about our series sponsor, Oxygen Ventures. Oxygen Ventures invests in passionate and innovative entrepreneurs who are building global first and scalable tech companies and are looking to raise a late seed or Series A round. Now, Oxygen Ventures don't consider themselves fund-only investors. They think of themselves as business builders. They offer strategic advice, introductions to their network, and business support as part of their investment. Oxygen Ventures has a mandate to invest in software-only tech businesses looking to raise between 500k and 5 million. You can learn more at oxygenventures.com.au. And we're back this week at Startups Australia with Matt Allen interviewing me. <laughs> Excellent. So um, you're about to put Moore's Cloud into liquidation. It's already in liquidation. Like, it is in liquidation. Yes. So um, that's not something that a lot of us like to think about. Right. But can you talk us through what that actually means in shutting down a company that has shareholders and investors? So if it's a voluntary liquidation, right? So in other words, if there's enough money around to pay off the creditors, then the way that you do that is you actually file what's called a Form 520 with ASIC, which is a statement of creditworthiness or whatever. It's a statement of solvency. That's what's called declaration of solvency. You get your accountant to fill it out and basically says, yes, you will be able to pay your debts over the next 12 months. Once that document has been filed with ASIC, you then have to call a meeting of the shareholders. And this is in the Corporations Act. And the shareholders have to vote with a 75% majority. So a supermajority, they have to voluntarily vote to liquidate. Now, there's actually two paths you can go by at this point. You can also voluntarily deregister, in which case the corporation decides how the assets get distributed among the shareholders, and then you just go to ASIC and you deregister. And that doesn't cost anything, per se. But if you're going to do a voluntary liquidation, you need to appoint a liquidator. And we appointed uh, William Buck in, in Sydney as the, the formal liquidators. And you propose the resolution and say, look, we're also going to be able to pay these folks. I think we agreed to pay them around $10,000. There's enough money around to pay them. And we have to vote on that resolution. So I called that special meeting of the shareholders. The shareholders were all there. And the meeting, uh, the resolution was proposed, unanim- proposed and then accepted unanimously. From that moment, the liquidators are effectively the directors of the corporation. And although I remain director, you know, in, in the interim, I'm acting at their direction. And so what we're doing is we're finding the list of all of the assets, which in most cut were not substantial. There was some stock. There are the molds that are, we're using to make things, some intellectual property, but nothing really major. Just getting that all tallied. And they're going through and just selling it. And quite often it's being sold to folks who have created it, right? And so people are getting good deals. And, and you know, in some ways, if Moore's Cloud couldn't make a go of this, if, if one of the investors wants to buy the intellectual property and make a go of it, I mean, it's sad, but then it means the product's not dead. And, and the only thing I've ever heard from people who use the product is how much they love the product. <laughs> so... Although we couldn't get enough investment to make a go of it, it would be sad if that meant that it was the end of holiday because it's a great product. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully what comes out of the sale of assets is that someone will be in a position where they can actually turn the key on the production line again. Right. Did you guys ever consider, you know, um, open sourcing anything? Was there any opportunity to... to It is all open source. I mean, the the source code is all open source. It's all on our GitHub and as are the drawings. Right. So that was never an issue. I think the only thing we didn't do is the mechanical drawings for the case and everything. Right. Um, And maybe the Gerber files for drilling the holes. I think those are the only things we did in open source. But everything else is open source. So... It's completely open for people to be able to take right. it. If they want to build it again on their own and, and make it, they're able to do that. We, we never wanted to close that door because that's not the barrier to entry here. The barrier to entry is building a production line, yeah, which is right. expensive and time-consuming and is very detail-oriented. And you know, I've learned all about that through this process. Well, speaking of that, um, 
you know, they, we talk about um, failure being all about learning. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, uh, you know, what's, it, what's a couple of big takeaways you've, um, you've learned, um, you know, during the last couple of years? You need to vet your investors. Uh, the problems that I've been having with some of the investors are because I failed to vet them adequately. And when you're in a position when you really, really need money, and it was, this is the case, and it's almost always going to be the case with a startup, you will tend to go, oh my God, it's great, someone's giving us money without actually looking the gift horse in the mouth. Well, kids, look the gift horse in the mouth. Get a good look down the throat. Look them up on LinkedIn. What else have they done? Why are they doing this? Why are they interested? Who else in the community have they worked with? What do they have to say? You owe it to yourself and to your co-founders and to your other investors to do this because otherwise essentially what you're doing is you're opening the company to an influence that will probably be more destructive than constructive over a period of time. So I think that's that's one big thing. Um, I think the second thing is that you can fool yourself about your capital requirements for a period of time, but you can only do it for a period of time. And particularly in hardware, hardware is much less capital intensive than it was five years ago, right? Just look at what we were able to do. But that doesn't mean it's not capital intensive relative to, say, someone who's doing a mobile app. It is. And you have to frame your need for capital, your need for investment, and your investment strategy around that. So the mistake that I made in planning for the business was that, and it, it's not even a mistake, it's just the way the calendar worked. We were so busy getting the product to market. So it was exactly a year ago. We had, had the production line fall down at the beginning of November because one of the components from one of the suppliers was faulty. And we actually had to fly our senior engineer to China to test it to find out and then go back to them and they had to go replace the part. So we lost a month. We, so just this time um, a year ago, we're just getting back on our feet and now I know the next thing I have to do is raise capital. But the problem was that it was so much work getting that job of shipping the product out that the, the timeline that we needed to raise capital, which really has to be around six months, we didn't have. We really only had effectively around two months and it simply wasn't enough time to raise the capital that we needed to keep the company going through that hump because a startup is going to need to go from you know 100,000 to close to half a million relatively quickly if it wants to keep the doors open. And there was simply not enough hands on deck and enough focus on that because we were focused on shipping product because that's what we knew we had to do. That was priority one, to be able to get us over that hump. And so we fell into this trough and we weren't able to get out of it. And so you need to, as impossible as that sounds, you actually need to be doing both of those things at once. You think that, you know, you, you had the CEO hat on. Yes. Um, you know, were you able to, delegation a thing that, you know, that are uh, learning out of that, being able to lean on some others to do the, the details or you, there was, just wasn't enough people around? There's just not enough people. I know, I mean, I mean, everyone was focusing in their area of expertise. So that was never a worry because I was never going to be able to run the manufacturing because I had never done it before. What I did was watch what happened as the manufacturing was run you know, through Robert Tiller and uh, Lisa, who was working with Robert Tiller, who ran our manufacturing for us and, you know, earned hazard pay because she was watching this process fail and then get fixed again. I could not have been able to do that because I had never done it before. So my job was to manage that process and make sure that all of the resources were being fed to that process because that's my job as CEO, but not to actually do that. It is my job as CEO to make sure that everything is happening, but at the same time, go and raise money. And there was not enough of me to go around. Yeah, cool. So yesterday we were at the conference Above All Human, mm. which you were emceeing, and um, there were some successful entrepreneurs up on stage. Yeah. But it seems like a lot of those guys were lucky. It seems like a lot of them happened to be in the right place at the right time. Persistent as well. Yeah. Were you guys unlucky? early, I think is what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm sure now that I've always been sure that within a couple of years, all Christmas lighting and pretty much all accent lighting is going to work like this. I have been consistently between five and 20 years ahead of things. I mean, when it comes to VRML, 20 years ahead, right? The difference between VRML and WebGL is linguistic. It's not functional. And so I'm, I thought with Moore's Cloud that 
I really had sort of arrived along with the market, but I actually think that we were still a little bit ahead of the market. So timing is important. Luck is important. Connections are important. Persistence is important. Intelligence is important. But I think the thing that we don't tell startup entrepreneurs enough, and we probably need to, is that in fact some of this is luck. And you know, it's okay. That's why persistence is important, because the more times you play, the more opportunity you're getting to have that lucky moment. But uh, again, if you do this over and over again, you're also going to find yourself perhaps behind your peers relative to where you could be if you went and worked as an engineer or as a marketing executive or as a banker. So there's an opportunity risk associated with that. There is. Matt? Thank you very much. No worries, my pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Just a few closing thoughts this week. Part of the mythology of startups is that it's possible to fail fast, learn your lessons, and then quickly move on to the next big thing. And, and as we've heard, failure for an entrepreneur is never fast. It, it always comes after a long, hard battle and probably a dark night of the soul. It's never easy it always leaves a mark. So anyone who can just fail fast and move on as though nothing happened, well, they haven't risked anything. Failure hurts. And the fear of failure, that hurts even more. Startup entrepreneurs are prized for their tenacity. Nikki Durkin took every problem and turned it into an opportunity. That's the tenacity it takes to build a great business, but tenacity isn't enough. But it's that same tenacity that keeps the entrepreneur going long after they should have called time. And that's the paradox at the heart of every startup because the entrepreneur is the last to see something that's obvious to everyone else. The last to accept that failure is an option. And what's the worst that can happen? Australians used to hide their failures. They used to be afraid they'd be wearing them for the entirety of their working lives. And that seems less true today. And the more startups we create, the more failures we're going to have to endure. That's the nature of this ecosystem. So in order to succeed, we have to wildly overproduce companies in the hopes that some of them, maybe even 10% of them, will grow up into sustainable businesses. And in order to do that, we have to overcome the fear of failure. We don't want to start fetishizing it. You can see that happening in Silicon Valley. But neither should we be amplifying its horrors. Failure sucks but failure makes good entrepreneurs better. Now, if you want to see photos of some of our guests, if you want to read the blog post that Nikki Durkin wrote about 99 Dresses, and it's excellent, I think you really should. And another great infographic about how funding and equity should work in a startup, check out our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Big thanks to Twister series sponsors, Optus Innovate and Oxygen Ventures. Their support keeps making this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's a joy to listen to. And there was a lot of work involved in making this one sound good. More thanks to Nikki Durkin and Jesse Black for making the time to come onto our show and talk about things that are hard to talk about. And big, big thanks to Melbourne location producer Matt Allen, who interviewed me many months ago, back in December, when this episode was really nothing more than a brainwave in the back of my mind. We'll be back in a fortnight with the final episode in Series 2 of Twista, looking to the future with an Australian ecosystem thought leader. Until then, this is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.